Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the flagship podcast of The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm the host, David Sirota. On today's show, we look at one of the biggest and most pernicious myths in all of American history the myth of the so-called free market. We talked to Harvard history professor Naomi Oreskes about her hugely important new book called The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. This week, we're not doing a bonus segment for our paid subscribers as I'm taking a few days off with the family for spring break. Don't be mad at me. We'll be back with bonus segments when I get back, I promise. One quick programming note. If you like the podcast that we do here, Go over to levernews.com slash podcasts and see our entire podcast network. Uh, We've got a couple of other shows that you can subscribe to as well, shows that I really recommend. For instance, Movies versus Capitalism. Every week, uh, the hosts go over a, a movie of the past, oftentimes a classic movie, and go deeper with the movie, looking at what kind of economic message uh, is baked into that movie. There was just a few weeks ago a terrific episode uh, with Academy Award-winning director and writer Adam McKay discussing why Office Space is one of the most important labor movies of all time. Also, if you go to levernews.com slash podcast, you'll find The Audit, which is where the hosts audit a class, an online class uh, or a, a, a book, an audio book or the like, so that you don't have to listen to it. Uh, they've done one on George Bush's masterclass, as an example. George Bush, yes, did a masterclass, uh, oftentimes in part of that class about the Iraq War, uh, which is we're now on the 20th anniversary, 20-year anniversary of that Iraq, of that Iraq War being launched. Uh, they go over what George Bush is now saying about the Iraq War uh, in the season, the mini-season about George Bush's masterclass. And I should mention, the audit has a new season coming out very soon. So go over to levernews.com slash podcasts and go subscribe to those podcasts in your podcast player. You go over to that website, you can click one button and bam, you are subscribed in your podcast player to those podcasts. So go there again, levernews.com slash podcasts. Okay, stick around. After the short break, we're going to go into the secret history of the biggest myth that dominates American politics. Welcome back to Lever Time. Did you ever wonder how we arrived at this moment in history where the private sector is worshipped and the government is constantly berated? It wasn't by accident. It happened because of a deliberate campaign by giant corporations and conservative politicians to create the myth of the so-called free market. Of course, we don't live in a free market. We live in a market that's rigged for the rich and powerful, but that rigging has been done under the guise of freedom. I discussed all of this with Harvard's Naomi Oreskes, who's the co-author of the fascinating new book, The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. It just came out in February. Here's our discussion. Naomi, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for taking some time with us and for writing this book. It's a topic that I'm, I've been obsessed with for a long time, the whole talk about the, the so-called great free market. Of course, we're talking in the 
week where we saw the um, the opposite of the free market operate in um, in the financial sector, where the biggest of big governments swooped in uh, to the um, to the so-called free market to do some rescuing of financial institutions and deposits. Um, before we get to that, let's let's first start with the name of of your book, the big myth. Why don't you explain what myth you're talking about and tell us how you came up with the idea of doing a book on this specific topic? Well, the big myth in our view is the myth of the free market. The idea that there is even is such a thing as a free market, as opposed to the reality that markets are human institutions. They're tools for doing things. They're created by people. They've been around since time immemorial. I mean, markets well predate the rise of capitalism, and they've always had rules and regulations for how they operate. So the question that we should be addressing is not, um, you know, do we approve of the free market or do we want to support the free market or trust the free market? The question is, what should the rules and regulations be under which markets operate? The myth that we live in a purely free market, how, how much or how long has that taken to develop? Where did it come from? Where did the effort start uh, to, to kind of pretend? Because that that's what's really going on here. We're pretending. There's folks who pretend that, that America has a, a so-called free market. Where did that effort to create that myth start? Well, this is exactly the topic of the book. So the book t tries to answer that question, and it does so in two ways. The first is to say it does not start with Adam Smith. Uh, if you actually read The Wealth of Nations, you find a much more nuanced and much more interesting perspective in which Adam Smith explicitly says um, certain things need to be regulated. And one of the specific things that he discusses is banks. So this is extremely timely this week. Um, but he also talks about the need for adequate wages for workers. He talks about the need for workers to be able to create collaborations, to stand up to the power of their managers who have all the power in the relationship. And he talks about the need for taxation to support the appropriate functions of government, including fulfilling needs like common goods, like roads and bridges and schools. So it didn't come from Adam Smith. So then the question is, where did it come from? And why do we think it came from Adam Smith? So in the book, we answer that question. And what we show is that starting in the early 20th century, there was a big debate that developed both in Europe and the United States, but we focus on the United States, about the limits and failures of capitalism, about what we call the social costs of capitalism, or what economists would sometimes call, call the external costs. And in this debate, which begins in the early 20th century over issues of child labor, and workplace injury, we see the beginnings of the creation of a myth of the free market that should just be left alone. And what we show in this book is that a group of business conservatives linked to Herbert Hoover, linked to trade organizations like the National Association of Manufacturers, and linked to the electricity industry, um, begin to develop this story, this myth that markets are powerful, that markets are wise, that markets are efficient, and that we just need to leave them alone and everything will be great. So this myth of a free market, this this idea that the United States, we have a completely free market or a near free market. Where did it start? Where did it come from? Who were the players that helped manufacture it in the public psyche? This is exactly the question that we answer in the book. And one of the things we show in the book is that it didn't come from Adam Smith. 
So a lot of people have the theory or they think that Adam Smith promoted an idea of capitalism as a free market, unregulated, unrestricted by government. And in the book, we show that that's just not true. Uh, in fact, if you read The Wealth of Nations, you find an extensive discussion of the need for regulation and very specifically a discussion of the need for the regulation of banks. You find a discussion of the need for adequate wages for workers, uh, the appropriateness of workers forming collectives to stand up to uh, managers who have all the power in that uh, asymmetrical relationship, and the need for taxation to support public goods like roads and bridges. So where does the idea of a free market really come from? In the book, we show that it mostly is developed in the 20th century in the United States. And so the story begins with a debate that takes place in the early 20th century over what we refer to as the social costs of capitalism. The real challenges and damage that was being done at that time. And the early debate centered particularly on two issues, child labor and workplace injury and death. And what we show in the book is that a conversation begins to take place about whether there should be restrictions on child labor, where children should be protected from working in factories and mines and mills, and whether work workers, not only workmen, but it was generally referred to as workmen at that time, um, should be compensated if they were injured or killed on the job. And many people at that time felt that the answer to those questions was yes. And so there's a growing movement for laws to protect ch children from child labor and to compensate workers, to have a system of workmen's compensation. But in response to that growing movement, the business community, led by some key figures, including Herbert Hoover, a set of trade organizations, including the National Association of Manufacturers, who was, were the largest trade organization in the United States at that time, and the electricity industry begin to work together to build a story about the free market, the power, the wisdom, the efficiency of the free market, and to argue that the government should not regulate the workplace, even for a seemingly good cause, like protecting five-year-olds from working in factories, because if we did, it would lead to a loss of freedom. So the question of where American public opinion is then becomes relevant because there's this idea being pumped into the into the public discourse, uh, as you describe it, uh, 80, 90 uh, years ago uh, about the, the, the free market, free market fundamentalism, free market triumphalism. American public opinion was not always as anti-government or as skeptical of government when it comes to these issues uh, as it seems to be now. Is that is that fair to say? Absolutely. In fact, it's, I would put it more strongly. Uh, all of the evidence that we have from that time period shows that the vast majority of Americans supported reasonable reforms, regulations. In the progressive era, majority of Americans supported reforms like child labor, supported reforms like workmen's compensation. And that becomes even more the case after the stock market crash of 1929 and the Great Depression, where a vast majority of Americans reject Herbert Hoover's voluntarist model and say, no, we need the government to do something to address this crisis. And so uh, public opinion was strongly behind FDR when he, in, when he creates social security, when he implements rural electrification, when he implements the FDIC to protect uh, depositors from failed banks. So, the vast majority of people at this time saw the government as their ally and saw big business as the culprit that, that bore most of the blame for the Great Depression. One of the things we showed in the, show in the book 
is that the people we studied made a conscious effort to change that. And one of the things they did was to promote the idea to contrast big business with, quote, big government and to make big government into the enemy. And we actually have documents where they explicitly say that. we They say, we need to make the villain in the story big government. And how are they going to do that? Well, the facts are not really on their side. So they create this story about big government being a threat to freedom and that the free market, they argue, um, is not just economically efficient, but it protects the freedom of American individuals. So there's this ongoing battle over uh, the size of government, uh, what government should do, what a free market is. I think the the broad strokes of it are the New Deal comes along after the uh, excesses of uh, of laissez-faire deregulation and the like. The New, New Deal comes along and puts in a lot of uh, quote-unquote big government programs that are actually quite successful, quite popular. But there is a turning point in the 1970s that – and I don't know if it's one event or a series of events, but I just want to hear you explain – what the turning points were to take a a few decades of of relative popularity of the idea of the government intervening in society in the market and how that was popular how that entered into the 1970s and pretty quickly started to turn well let me first of all say that we reject the word intervening because the whole notion of the government intervening in a way is what these people are trying to make us think right they want us to think that the market exists independently of us and that when the government intervenes that that's a distortion it's a problem as opposed to governance economy political economy being intertwined issues and activities so so as you say what we argue in the book is that for the most part in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and into the 50s, these propagandists don't succeed. They don't win the argument, and they partly don't win it because the facts don't support it. But in response to that, they continue to proselytize, to propagandize, uh, to try to get this message to break through. And even in the 50s, it still doesn't. And one of my favorite quotations in the book is a quotation from Dwight Eisenhower, who says, well, you know, if any party ever tried to get rid of Social Security, you'd never hear from that party again. And then he says, I mean, there is a small minority who believe that, but their number's negligible and they're stupid. It's just a beautiful quote, right? But then things begin to change. And so how and why do they change? And this is what we try to address in the second half of the book. And we think there's, it isn't just one thing, but there's a couple of things. So in the 1970s, the United States and many European economies as well do face a problem. Economic growth slows dramatically. The whole post-World War II boom more or less comes to an end. And then we get this problem called stagflation, stagnation of the economy with high unemployment, but also high inflation. And that's pretty lousy. No one likes it. And also... No one really understands it because the traditional Keynesian view of the economics was that there was a trade-off between inflation and unemployment. If you wanted to have a robust economy with full employment, you had to have low interest rates, but that could lead to inflation. Higher interest rates could slow inflation like we're seeing the Fed trying to do right now, but that would risk higher unemployment. And so the part of the job of the Fed was always understood to be to try to tweak the knobs to find that right balance. But when we get stagflation that really throws a lot of people um, into, into a bit of a, a dilemma. What do we do now? And so people are looking for an answer. 
And the right wing, the con business conservatives that we've been tracking are ready with an answer. And their answer is overregulation. And they've been cultivating this argument for a long time. And now they say, this is it. The answer to our problem is we need to deregulate the economy. And so we begin to see that happening already in the Carter administration. And then when Ronald Reagan becomes president, he absolutely runs with that. We're into the 19, into the 1970s. There's this popularization of uh, the so-called free market. Uh, the so-called New Deal consensus starts to break down. Where do you see the biggest policy implications for starting at that point, moving into the into the modern day? Where do you see the biggest policy implications for the success of the big myth? In other words, there's the big myth that's out there that's kind of burrowing its way into the American psyche. What are the policy expressions of that myth that come come to pass, come to be? Well, this is where Ronald Reagan, of course, plays an important part of the story, but it's He's important in a way that I think many people have not entirely understood. So one of the things we show in the book is how Ronald Reagan then brings these ideas into the mainstream when he's elected president of the United States, but leads this interesting question, where did Reagan come from? I mean, Reagan was an actor, and when he was in Hollywood, he was a Democrat, and he was the president of a union, the Screen Actors Guild. So he's a pro-union Democrat uh, in the 40s and 50s, but later as he emerges into the political scene, first as governor of California and then as president, he is this extremely strident anti-government Republican. And what we show in the book is that that transition, that transformation has an explanation and it takes place in the halls of the General Electric Corporation. So most Americans know that before he was a politician, Reagan was an actor, but what most of them don't know is that there's this transition period where he works for General Electric. General Electric was a company that had a reputation for being extremely anti-union. They undertook many uh, activities to try to break the power of the Electrical Workers Union, and they were cited by the National Labor Relations Board for violations of labor laws. But they pushed an anti-government, anti-union ideology heavily in their, in their corporate settings through magazines, through reading lists that they distributed, uh, which included, um, you know, right-wing propagandists and conservatives through a training program for their corporate executives, but also through Ronald Reagan. And Reagan did two important things for him, and they did something important for, for Reagan. So part of Reagan's job was hosting a television program called General Electric Theater. Each week, this program would feature didactic stories of people succeeding through individual hard work without the help of the government, standing on their own two feet, stories of young boys becoming men by standing up for themselves. Reagan was the host of this program. And it was very, very popular. It was a well-made, well-produced show. It was seen every week by millions of Americans. And so Reagan became a household name. He became famous, not because of the, frankly, crappy movies he made in the 40s and 50s, but because of this rather good television show that he hosted in the 50s. But in addition, he goes on the lecture circuit on behalf of GE, promoting the GE vision, the anti-union anti-government vision. And he gives, he starts giving speeches, in some cases, multiple speeches in a day to, on the shop floor, to school teachers and school groups and communities where GE has factories, and on the dinner circuit, to rotary clubs, to lion clubs, things like this. And he begins to develop the argument that becomes his mantra when he becomes president, which is that government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. 
Now, he comes out of GE with one other important and crucial thing. So he comes out with this completely new ideology, very different from the views he held uh, previously. But also, he comes out with a set of powerful and wealthy backers who then help him launch his campaign for governor, help him finance that campaign. So he becomes governor of California and in one fell swoop goes from being a mediocre actor to a very influential, important politician. Let's turn to the to the Democrats uh, for a moment here. I, I mean, I think there's this idea that, that free market ideology is associated with the conservative movement, Republicans, as you just laid out. But how have these beliefs also become core among Democrats and liberals? And I mean, I mean, it's not just the Republicans here. There, this is sort of in sort of been embraced. At least part of it has been embraced by some parts of the Democratic Party. Exactly. And this is a really important part of the argument in the third third of the book, that the business conservatives, Ronald Reagan, are so effective in making this case that government's the problem, not the solution, that Democrats are influenced by it as well. And many moderates, many Americans begin to believe that this is true. And so when Bill Clinton becomes president, many people may remember, some people may remember that in his State of the Union speech, he declared the era of big government is over. And that, I mean, that could almost have come from Ronald Reagan. And so it shows how deeply these ideas had penetrated and influenced even center-left Democrats. And in the book, we talk about some of the policy implications of that. So two very important things that Clinton does, he deregulates telecommunication. And he, if you, in the book, we talk about the speech he makes. It's all about freeing competition to deliver better goods and services to the consumer. But of course, that's not what happens. What actually happens is massive consolidation so that we actually have less competition in telecommunication. And we argue that that actually has pretty serious impacts for the state of our democracy in the years that follow. And the other thing that, that he did, which is still also ramifying today, is the deregulation of the financial sector. And many economists, I mean, here, we're not economists, but we rely on work that others have done. Many economists do feel that there's a pretty clear causal link from the deregulation of the era, Clinton years into the financial collapse of 2008. So I want to ask one, one final question about, about why America seems so exceptional. I'm putting that in quotes, but so exceptional when it comes to this kind of free market fundamentalism. Uh, at least in comparison to most other industrialized uh, nations and advanced economies, you look at a place like uh, Europe. It doesn't seem. I mean, I'm not a you know Europe political expert, but it doesn't seem at the kind of fifty thousand foot view that Europe uh, European countries have this kind of free market fundamentalism baked into their politics. I wonder if you think that's true. And I, I'm be curious to know why you think that is, or put another way, why this is such a, seems to be such an American phenomenon, a uniquely American myth that pervades our politics. Well, I think it is broadly true. I mean, obviously there are nuances and exceptions, but if you look at the European experience, it's extremely important, especially the post-war experience, because it refutes the market fundamentalist argument that if you have, let's say, national health care, that you're on the road to totalitarianism. Virtually all of the Western European governments after 1945 implement strong social safety networks to deal with the social costs of capitalism, to protect people from unemployment, 
uh, and workplace injury, and none of them become communist. So from a factual standpoint, this refutes one of the central arguments of the market fundamentalists. So it really is important for us to compare and contrast. But why, why do we have such a different experience here in the United States? Well, I'd say it's two things. One is that this market fundamentalist propaganda is primarily promoted in the United States by a bunch of American businesses, American business leaders, American trade organizations that for which there isn't really an equivalent in Europe. There are some equivalents. Another part of the story is that these business leaders that we're talking about actually bring to America some of the key people in Europe who would have supported those arguments. So one part of the book, we discuss how a group of business leaders, the very same people who attack socialism as a foreign theory, actually bring foreign theorists to America to help promote market fundamentalism. They bring two of the key founders of neoliberal politics, or I should say neoliberal economics, Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich von Hack. They bring them to America and they arrange behind closed doors to get them jobs in American universities. And one of them, of course, you might not be surprised to hear is the University of Chicago. So they cultivate this work. Shocker, shocker. Yes, right. (laughs) Shock, shock. There's gambling going on. So they cultivate these ideals and they fund them and they support them and they promote them in a way that doesn't happen in Europe. Now, maybe that's just a historical contingency, but that is the fact of what happens. And then the third thing, which I think is important to acknowledge, propaganda works best when it appeals to something that people believe in, when it's not just completely ridiculous. I mean, if we're completely ridiculous, people would say no, but there has to be some kind of kernel of truth or it has to appeal to some values that people hold. And Americans do hold very dear the values of freedom, maybe more so than some people in some European countries. And we particularly hold dear the notion of individual freedom and individual choice. America is a more individualist country than, say, Germany or France or Italy, certainly much more individualist than most Asian na- nations. I mean, I'm obviously painting with a broad brush here. Um, and of course, America was founded on a kind of primacy of individual rights, which again is different than what you see in many other countries. And so the appeal to individual liberty, the appeal to individual choice, it builds on core American values, values which in some ways are good, Right. We're not saying that we don't believe in freedom, but it builds on them and uses them in ways that are misleading and ultimately damaging. Naomi Oreskes is a professor of the history of science at Harvard University. The new book is called The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. It's just out. I should mention that Naomi is also the author of the book Merchants of Doubt, which is about the origins of climate change denial. I, I Highly recommend both of those books. And Naomi, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today's show. Thanks a ton for being a paid subscriber to The Lever. As I've always said, we really couldn't do this work without our paying subscribers. If you particularly like this episode, consider pitching into our tip jar. The tip jar link is in the episode's description or over at levernews.com slash tip jar. Every little bit helps us do this journalism. Oh, and one more thing. Be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Keep rocking the boat. The Lever Time Podcast is a production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, David Sirota. Our lead producer is Jared Jacang-Mayer, and our editor is Dennis Golan. 
You can find all of our past episodes at levertimepod.com or on all of the major podcast players.